Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and happy holidays, I guess. <laughs> For those of you listening to this in April, it's December. <laughs> they may be near a different holiday, you know. It's, when, yeah, when near I... a different holiday. That's right. Every season is a holiday season, right? That's right. Well, this is Trish Lambert, the co-host of, of Silmarillion Film Project, and I'm here with um, our primary co-host, Corey Olson, and a cast of threes. Uh, to have our last, actually, this is our last session of the whole season and the final script review of season four. That's right. That's right. We are getting towards the end of season four. We'll have a couple miscellaneous, and it's going to be the last, uh, the last episode of 2019. Because um, uh, after this, of course, we're straight into the 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 holidays uh, there um, uh, at the end of 2019. Um, but we'll be back in January for just a couple sessions, uh, tying up some post-production stuff. Um, and uh, then uh, we will be on to season five. Uh, season four has been such a long and uh, interesting trip. Um, uh, really fascinating stuff as we've been breaking new ground in so many different ways, like in our methods, but because we're breaking so much new narrative ground, you know, and I, I was, I was kind of reflecting on this again. I, I know I've, I've, I've been reflecting on this off and on and I've often talked about this. Um, but I just, it's, it's something I just kind of keep mulling over, you know, um, how to explain to someone what I mean when I talk about like how this, how the Silmarillion is not a novel, right? Like what is the difference between the Silmarillion and a novel? How does it differ in narrative form? Why does the particular narrative form of the Silmarillion really mandate some of the, you know, a, a lot of this work that we're doing and which therefore opens the door to so many of the changes and developments that we have. And one example that I was just reminded of when I was, I couldn't help but think of it when I was listening to the, uh, to the scripts today, uh, from, uh, we're, cause we're, we're doing, uh, we're doing 12 and 13, uh, today. And I was, you know, so I was thinking about the choice of Turgon to go to Gondolin, right? And I couldn't help but reflect back over not only the Silmarillion, but the history of the Silmarillion. Um, and you sort of realize that choice, right? Turgon's choice to build Gondolin and to move there, right, and move all of his people there and kind of leave the leaguer and leave the war and, and go into his little hidden valley there uh, and set up his little elvish utopia. Um, Tolkien never answered the question. Like, the question, what was going through Turgon's mind? Like, what were the factors he had to weigh in order to decide whether or not that was a good idea? That's literally a question that, is, that never is put forward in the entire history of the writing of the Silmarillion, because the existence of Gondolin is one of the initial factors, like the fall of Gondolin, one of the first stories that Tolkien ever wrote. And it's premised upon the fact that there were dark days when Morgoth's power was like spread over almost all of Beleriand, but there was one hope remaining. There was the hidden kingdom of Gondolin where Turgon was king. uh, And it was the last refuge of the elves. Like, that story, that premise of the story was one of the earliest premises of one of the earliest stories that he wrote. So the idea of this moment emerging like it is in the course of the narrative that we have where we've introduced these characters, we've, we've set the stage, um, and now we have to decide, okay, why does Turgon do it? 
And how are other people going to respond to it? And why does Aradel go? And what is Idril thinking? You know, what's in Idril's mind when she decides to go? Um, Again, just those are things that are never, ever talked about. Any gestures towards that, towards the mechanism, how do they build it, how do they get there, towards the thought process undergoing uh, that decision, any glimpses into that that we're given in the Silmarillion as it stands is all like retcon stuff and mostly partial retcon stuff that Tolkien has done way after the fact, right? When he's taken, uh, because he took that original concept, uh, that original fall of Gondolin uh, uh, framework, right? Um, and like stitched it together with these other stories in order to make these these other legends. But you see the lack of connective tissue there, right? Between the Gondolin concept, the Gondolin story and what's going on in the rest of the flow of the history there, it's that, that lack of connective tissue is not obvious in the Silmarillion because it's fine. It doesn't, the kind of narrative it is, it doesn't need it, right? When you're just kind of telling a bunch of legendary stories, which are kind of put together in chronological order, but they're not really designed to be this kind, you know, we're just told like, and in those days, Turgon went to Gondolin. Okay, there we are, right? That's really for the sake of the kind of story that the Silmarillion is telling, all that we need to know. But that is very much not all that we need to know. And and when we actually are kind of coming in on the ground level and thinking about these characters and their development and these stories and how they are all working together and one leading to another, um, it creates a whole world of questions, which uh, which Tolkien not only never answered, but never asked. Um, and it seems to me inevitable, absolutely inescapable, uh, that the answers to those questions are going to lead us to divergent ways. In fact, I actually think, you know, there are some people who uh, whose response to some of our Silmarillion film uh, project you know, things um, whose response has been like, why do you guys keep changing things? Like, why can't you just stick to the text? And honestly, under these circumstances that I'm describing, I kind of thinking back big picture, I'm kind of amazed we've stuck to it as well as we have actually. It's because it's a, it's a pretty serious challenge at, at times to make this kind of thing work. And I definitely think that the move into Gondolin is one of those factors, which when we kind of come to it here is, is pretty challenging. Um, so anyway, it's just a little preamble on uh, on some of the creative work uh, going on here um, and uh, one of the reasons why I think this is so much fun to do. So um, anyway, sorry, that was just my reflections from today on uh, on not only on the, the, the specifics of this, but again, uh, on this whole this whole project uh, that we have undertaken. So um uh, just a cu- I won't spend too long on this. Just a couple quick announcements before we go. These are pretty much the same as last time. We're in the middle of our moot season, so we don't have any immediate upcoming ro- moots. The next one is Tex Moot down in Houston. The call for papers is up there in TexMoot.org. Um, so I encourage you to to uh, uh, to get in there. The registration isn't open yet, but there's still quite some time. Uh, still a little bit under two months before uh, before that moot happens. And of course, we're going to be opening registration for Myth Moot Seven. Defying and defining the darkness soon, but uh, but save the date June twenty seventh through thirtieth, so that you can come and join us at Mythmoot and uh, and and just find your tribe, be surrounded as Nick was describing by people who you know love all this stuff as much as you do, um, and that 
feeling, Nick, that you were describing of feeling like you are like the most ignorant person in the room is totally not true, by the way. Um, but I understand what you mean by that. It certainly is a different experience, but it, it comes along with this really wonderful sense of community, right? Where like you don't have to explain yourself to people. Um, I remember having a conversation about this just at Middlemoot uh, a couple months ago where there was uh, um, a woman who came in a uh, a, a, a a fan orient t-shirt um, and everyone was commenting on her, on how much they loved her t-shirt all day long and she's like before I came here today I've never met anybody who ever even got my shirt <laughs> like, you know how many times I have worn this and no one has ever commented on it and people just give me strange looks and like here everyone has said something that's that's the kind of experience so anyway I hope people will be able to join us uh, for Myth Mood in June uh, and of course our spring 2020 classes at Signum are coming up so all of these things you can find at SignumUniversity.org one last thing I would mention actually also um, through Christmas we're having uh, uh, we're having a, a gift certificate sale like we always do. So if you would like to give the gift of uh, of an anytime audit of any of our Signum courses, um, you just uh, you can buy it at. at at a reduced rate, a gift certificate, uh, and then you can give that to 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 a friend or loved one uh, who can then pick their own cor- whatever course they want out of our entire catalog. So um, it's a, a really fun and unusual kind of gift idea. Uh, so I encourage uh, everybody to think about that. That'll run through through Christmas, essentially. So, all right, let us move on to our script reviews uh and this again of course uh, this slide is just as always reminding folks where they can find these excellent scripts to uh to read and enjoy uh in detail um uh on our discussion boards uh, but before we begin episode 12 i wanted to finish up this last detail that we had that I was bringing up at the end of our discussion last week about episode 11 this question why does Galadriel marry Caliborn. What does she see in the guy? Um, I like the reference. It was one of the... It was Kelligorm, wasn't it? Who actually used the word settle uh, for Galadriel. That he was surprised that Galadriel would settle for somebody like that. And like, I've met Kelleborn. He seems Corfin, like a schmo. Who was it? Corfin. Corfin. Okay, okay, right. There you go. Um, uh What's the answer? What's the response to that? Okay, so there were that was the question I asked, and and uh, there's some uh, some some answers here because they love each other. Okay, El, uh, Hakon is saying that elves have a deep and strong soul connection with the love of their life, a bond that holds over ages and despite the death of one or both. Um, agreed, agreed that you know that uh, you know that elves generally. Finway accepted, made for life, right? Uh, so that's um, uh, that's certainly a big deal. Um, and it is true that Celeborn was there for her when she needed him, um, and you know she she wants to, you know she wants to continue that even though now she is, you know, stronger again and has moved uh, past that with his, you know, that moment, you know, that crisis that she's been having in this season with his help. Um, He's a great guy. This, by the way, is something that I think is going to be really fun for us to continue to do, right? I mean, as I said, have said before, right? Sauron and Galadriel are our two longest-running characters in film film, right? Those are the two more than any others that we're going to keep coming back to again and again. And, of course, 
Celeborn is going to be Galadriel's plus one all the way through that discussion. So um, making sure that Celeborn, that we, you know, we have a, this pretty interesting uh, and long-term job, right? To try to, to show Celeborn's role, Celeborn, you know, to, to, to work out in future seasons, to be working out more and more the dynamics of their marriage and of their leadership when the two of them are leading communities, as they will be on a couple of occasions. Um, well, uh, and by occasions, I mean for millennia at a time. Um, uh, but so they, they will, there will be several communities that they will be leading. Um, and how do we show them as you know, relating to each other in, in the leadership of those communities and stuff. So I think that there's a lot that we can do without doing any, um, without going too far off the track, you know, without making Celeborn into, uh, um, you know, a, a character who looks nothing like the Celeborn that we see in the Lord of the Rings, you know, keeping him consistent with what we see there. Um, but yet making sure he's not a non-entity. Uh, so certainly we can help our viewers not to be um, dissatisfied with Galadriel's choice of Celeborn. By we can we can help that happen by making Celeborn a char- character who doesn't suck, basically who's not boring and insipid all the way through. Um, I have a question about this last one. Celeborn is the guy she wants to share her life with. She hasn't given up her ambitions for a realm of her own, but she's okay with the idea of ruling it together. Um, I want more information on that. What's her vision of that? And how has that changed? If we had to describe, so like she was focused on her own ambition, on her own desire to rule before, how has that been qualified by her the love for Celeborn that she has found over the course of this season. What would we say her right now from the, you know, things will, you know, will happen and her character will grow and continue to change over the next, you know, several thousands of years. Um, But what would we say right now as she's pulling the trigger on this, right? She's, 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 she's going to tie the knot with Celeborn. How is she imagining this is going to work? I think the main thing that has changed since um, the kinslaying and everything is that she's gotten to know Melian a lot better and she's seen how Doriath functions. Yes. So she doesn't necessarily want to be Melian 2.0, but she kind of does. Like there's a glimmer of that. She doesn't want exactly what Melian has, but she wants some of that. And Melian doesn't rule Doriath. Melian is the queen of Doriath as Thingol's partner. So she's, changed her solo ambition to being an ambition that has a partner included, mm-hmm. kind of based on Melian. Right. While not looking for her own version of Thingol, because I don't think we've shown Galadriel to have any particular interest in who Thingol is. <laughs> yeah, no. No. And that's I mean the 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 that is a a parallel which clearly does suggest itself, right? Um and the Galadriel Melian parallel seems fairly close, right? Um but the Thingo Celeborn parallel, as you're suggesting, seems much less close, right? Um, right. So that she's not looking for a parallel. She's recognizing that there's a value to having a partner in anything you do in life, right. including rule a realm <laughs> or right. get married or, you know, these right. sorts of things. It, it's it kind of hard to, to get married without one 
Yeah, yeah, yeah I've noticed that, yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing also is that, you know, I mean, geez, you know, this guy kept her secret for her from his liege, right? I mean, there's a there's a level of loyalty there. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I'd certainly fall in love with the guy that did that for me. You know, if I'd been involved in like genocide and the guy didn't tell anybody about it that's awesome that's right. right true well, love is covering for your partner's genocide genocide yeah <laughs> and, and you know i and i think along with what marie said you know it's kind of like the melian thing and then it's like geez this guy is like like uber loyal i yes. mean he's like this is a guy i could see standing by my side for millennia yes I, you know i think that's part of it and 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 the way that he has done it too, right? The way that he has handled himself. Right. He is clearly not going to be ever a rival to her. No. Right? Right. That's another good point. There's a kind of humility that he has shown, which doesn't make him a pushover, because he has been, in a lot of ways, he has been the one guiding this, right? He has been a, a mentor figure to her um, right. as they've been working through this. So it's not that, you know, she likes him because he's a pushover. Um he had, but he does, you know, he has been showing a kind of humility, um, you know, not f- sh- her temptation is to focus on herself, right? Is to aggrandize herself. Um, he doesn't have that at all. And I think that she, it's easy to understand, especially in the context of how uh, he is treated, that, that she would appreciate that. She would value that, right? That he would, she would see him as a good, in that way, a good counterbalancing of, 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 of her. Um, and, and therefore, you know, Maria, as you were saying, a really natural partner for ruling a realm. There's actually a, a few interesting things about this. Um, one being that I, I find it really interesting when the same people who really want to appreciate strong female characters in the in Tolkien's works just mock Celeborn for letting his wife take the lead, which <laughs> yes. I find rather hilarious. It's like, yes. what, like I'm sorry, what what? what is it that you want from this guy <laughs> yes exactly I know. what would please you That's, yes yeah the second thing that i've uh, been thinking about recently is that Celeborn is not really an analog of thingle Celeborn is actually more of an analog of melian in this situation so where thingle and melian kind of have this rather unbalanced situation right mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. While Thingol is wielding all the political power, everybody really knows that Melian is significantly more powerful than he is. Yes. They, Celeborn and Galadriel kind of get it right in a way that Thingol and Melian really don't ultimately. Yes. I agree. There is, I mean, it's not, you don't have to look very hard to see that there is kind of a core dysfunction in Thingol and Melian's marriage, right? I mean, this is, I mean, on the one hand, they rub along as best you can when you're, you know, when you have that kind of an imbalance, right? I mean, you know, when you marry a goddess, there are issues. Uh, You know, it's kind of hard to have a balanced relationship when you marry a goddess, but still. um, but yeah, so Nick, I agree. Um, and I was just, I had just been kind of working myself around to thinking in that similar direction. There will be a lot of ways. Not exactly. It's not just flipped, right? But in which Celeborn does have a lot of the traits that we see in Melian, right? Right. Uh, just as she is the one who is wise, right? And But who is going to take the role of wisely advising the person who is taking yeah. the lead. Yeah. We're, and, and whereas 
the imbalance is primarily one of the things that causes problems for Thingol and Melian. Yes. Celeborn and Galadriel are a lot more co-equal. Yes. You know, yes, she's a Calaquendi and and in raw power she probably has a significant edge over him, but he's also a lot older than she is, mm-hmm. even in elvish terms. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Uh, one thing that I wanted to be very careful of, and I'm not entirely certain that we've done this adequately. And uh, Trish, what you were saying earlier kind of brought this to my mind is not to make it just that, you know, it, Galadriel likes him because he's a nice guy and he she kind of owes him like that's right. kind of the situation I really wanted to avoid because that's not that's not really how life works right. I'm here to tell you, <laughs> you right know? right um, especially I mean like let's face it like t- till death do we part means a heck of a lot more to elves than it does to <laughs> humans right I mean she's making a multi-millennia commitment here uh, to... and even death doesn't get you out of an elvish marriage exactly nope. yeah this is like, you're right it's not this till death is until we... the end of time <laughs> right is what you're signing on for <laughs> yes and for some reason elves still get married <laughs> right exactly so so yes I mean so Nick I agree it can't be like you know these last few years uh, you've been great right and you really helped me through this rough patch so I think I want to spend the next hundred thousand years in partnership with you <laughs> like yeah that's not gonna work as a rationale uh, by itself in any case yeah agreed w- one of the things that just kind of um, you know thinking about the the Thingol and Melian parallel and everything and and uh, Nick as you said it's it's not exactly the same one way to interpret some of Goadriel's comments one of the things which when people find Goadriel's comments about Celeborn comical, the the ones that they're talking about, right, or when she's complimenting him, you know, when she talks about how Celeborn is a mighty king and, and all that kind of thing, and we're all like it, you know, she's saying that to stroke his ego and make him feel uh, better. Um, but I think there's, there, there's a fairly simple way to understand this. It wouldn't surprise me in the least if Celeborn were, in fact, the lord of the Galathrim. Like, if you were one of the Galathrim living a, on a daily basis there in Lorien, Celeborn is has the political power primarily. Like he's prime, and and Galadriel she does other things, right? She has the ring of power. She is the one who is focused on like opposing Sauron and these other big kind of metaphysical things, right? She's but, sort of the Secretary of State, right? <laughs> in, in a you sense, know? right? Foreign I mean, Secretary, Foreign yeah. Secretary. Yeah, I mean she's yeah. she's involved in this uh, like wholly other conflict, whereas he, he really is, or again, I could imagine her words suggesting that he really is the, like, the day-to-day ruler of the Goathrim. I don't think, like, does Goadriel decide, like, you know, judicial disputes among the Galathrim when that happens? I doubt it. I would think Celeborn would do that, right? Yeah, um, I agree. But, of course, in the narrative of The Lord of the Rings, Galadriel, you know, stands 50 times taller than Celeborn because her, you know, the narrative, right, the quest of the ring is, like, that falls straight in her bailiwick. It's at her right? wheelhouse. Yeah, Absolutely. That's, that's right. like, that's what she does. And so, of course, that's what we hear about. And that's uh, that's what, you know, the, the internal politics of the Galathrim is almost utterly irrelevant right to uh to 
to the story of the Lord of the Rings. Um, right. And the one time in which it connects, uh, that is namely uh, when they're brought before them. Remember, Celeborn responds when when they're when they're the strangers are brought before them, and also in the appendix, um, we're told that it's. You know, it's a, it's Celeborn who leads the army into Mirkwood and and uh, uh, and you know fights the, the the you know the battle of Southern Mirkwood there, um, in that other theater of the War of the Ring. It's not Galadriel who leads the army. Um, it's you know Celeborn acting as king of the Galathrim, as the Lord of the Galathrim, who does that. Anyway, so there are I definitely ways. I can just see the two of them standing up on their flat, right, watching the eight people arrive, and him turning to her and saying. I think this is yours, dear. Right, exactly. You know, and, but we, we should probably both attend to this one, right? Yeah, there's, there's going to be some there's going to be some overlap of responsibilities. But you know right, what, honey, right. I'm going to let you take the lead because yeah, this is uh, this is your this is really kind of in your your uh, this is your area. area. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So anyway, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that that's necessarily how we need think about it moving forward. But again, I think even the things that are actually said in the text of the Lord of the Rings could be understood in that in that way. Um, that that would that is a theory that would make sense of many of the things that Galadriel says, and would certainly make them seem not you know not silly or not comical. Um. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think this is uh, you know th- finding in Celeborn somebody whom she respects. Um. But also, whom she 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 recognizes a good partner because he is complementary to her in some important mm-hmm. ways. I think is a really, really important thing for us to to be thinking about and for us to be sure. I mean, this is in some ways, of course, this issue is not. I mean, it is involved with episode uh, eleven, of course, like with the whole betrothal scene. We need to make sure that the viewers have a clear sense. That she's not settling, that this is not, you know, some kind of post-trauma rebound relationship that she's going to end up um, regretting for the next 150,000 years. Um, But also, as we move forward and we show the two of them henceforth as a team operating in every single season that we have for the rest of some film, um, (laughs) you know, we need to start thinking about those complementary ways in which they work together. I think it would be pretty cool. I mean, if we think about it, really, there aren't so many really good long-term husband-wife teams that we get in the Elvish world, right? I mean, most of We lose a lot of the wives. (laughs) We lose a lot of the wives. Uh, I mean, I'm sure Elrond and, you know, Calabrian might have been great, but, you know... She then she's gone. Uh, so yeah, it's we we have here an opportunity to show a real husband and wife team operating as a team together for ever essentially. Um, and again, <laughs> thinking about that long term payoff, right? Imagine Tolkien goes out of his way a little bit to give us a glimpse into the significance of Elrond's departure, right? Of, of Arwen's choice and Elrond's departure and, and their separation, right? He makes a little bit less of an effort, not no effort. Celeborn gets one speech, right? But um, there's only a tiny 
bit of a hint at what that separation between Galadriel and Celeborn uh, means for them, right? When she goes away to Valinor and he decides to stay, think about the payoff, right? Think about how that's going to feel. What a big deal that's going to feel like. Think about the freight, the emotional and, and, you know, freight of that departure, right? How they're going to feel the significance of Elrond's departure, of Arwen's choice, of Galadriel's choice and Galadriel and Celeborn's separation there, right? My goodness, what a big deal that's going to be, right? That's awesome. Um, Okay, any other thoughts on Galadriel and Celeborn? No, I think that about covers it. Okay. Maybe something, thinking script-wise, maybe something... Could in could be worked into that conversation because as I recall last time I was talking about wanting a bit more of um, conversation between Goadriel and Finrod, right? Him being the right. logical person to to ask the question, you know, could you explain to me why you want to marry this guy? I want you know want to make sure you're going to be happy and everything, and uh, you've been kind of you know off for the last you know. Hundred years decades. or so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I just want to make sure things are okay. Um, something in that conversation about you know what you know the 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 partnership that she foresees. You know the 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 respect she has for him and you know the complementary nature of their characters. I can imagine that being being worked in in a because the, you know that's the thing, right? You imagine the engagement scenes that we get like at the end of Jane Austen novels and stuff like that. Right. Um, and it's not elvish betrothals for the reasons that we were just describing. These are not going to be like decisions made in a gush of emotion. Right. I mean, that is just not how elves are going to be operating when they're choosing their, their spouse. Um, so, that kind of discussion, I think, would be good for that reason as well. Like, it's it's not just that she's emotionally invested, right? Um, it's all of the reasons she has to believe that this partnership is going to be really good and really fruitful uh, moving forward. Um, so, I think they... Uh, but again, I know it's going to be challenging in some ways because there were... It's one thing for us to show the elves thinking and feeling in ways that are kind of different from the way humans think and feel, right? But in do, in in doing that, like in having a an engagement scene with them thinking and feeling in different ways, like here we're like stepping on the toes of uh, you know we're 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 transgressing against like all of the you know these robust traditions of modern film and, and everything else. Like we know how betrothal scenes are used, are, 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 are used to go. Right. And for us to do a betrothal scene that doesn't inspire a gush of emotion in the same way, right. That isn't just, you know, uh, somebody flinging herself into somebody else's arms. Right. If, if that's not the way it goes down, um, you know, we run the risk of it feeling strange, but it, it kind of should feel strange, right? As we've said so often about so many elvish things, um, we don't want um, it to be totally incomprehensible and, and off-putting. But um, well, one know. thing that Hakan had pointed out was that 
Finrod should see Galadriel and Celeborn together and recognize what their relationship is. Yes. And therefore, while he can still question her about, so what's up with you? It shouldn't necessarily be in a way of, and you're still in that same bad place you were in the last time I saw you. It's more of the, well, whatever you're doing is working. <laughs> and, you know, right. he's obviously good for you. And I, I wish you both the best. Like, there has to be a, um, a recognition there that he sees that in her. So it's not necessarily a um, sudden realization that we're going for, as you point out. But we can probably still get some of the reactions just in a different format, maybe. A little Agreed. more muted. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that's exactly right. And as we've said before, Finrod is one of the most, you know, empathic of all of the Noldor that we've shown. Um, so yes, he Let's should not be oblivious. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Plus, Finrod and Celeborn know each other really well. Yes. They've been living several years together in the camp of the Noldor, but yes. when, in episode one, when they first show up and Kyrdin and Celeborn come down and live with them until Mithras gets rescued. Yes, yes, exactly. Finrod was from the... Even before Finrod came to Doriath, uh, Finrod and Celeborn were allies long since. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. He, he he will know him very well as well. So presumably he has a higher opinion of Celeborn than Curufin does, right? Uh, which would be no which would be no surprise. So I agree. It isn't that we want to show her having to talk around an older brother who is reluctant to give his approval or something like that. That's not the scene uh, that we would have. He would get it. Um, but he would also want to understand, you know, he would want to, he would be interested in hearing uh, her about, again, her vision for this, right? Um, and part of that, I think, is also just a matter of him, uh, you know, I, again, I think about that conversation from episode 12 about how Galadriel's changed, right? You know, even when Kurofin is talking about it rudely, it's true, she has changed, right? And so, even though Finrod, he does, he is very perceptive, he's still going to be trying to understand exactly where is Galadriel right now? What are her plans? What are her goals? What are her desires? And how has she changed? Um, he's definitely going to still be kind of needing her help in in really understanding that. And this is definitely a big part of that. Okay, cool. Let us move on then to episode 12, which I've already been giving uh, glimpses to. So the primary business of episode 12 is the beginning um, of the... Well, really, the beginning and the middle, right, of the building of both Gondolin and of uh, Nargothrond. Um, and we've got Arathel's farewell tour uh, going on here in episode 12 as well. Um, and, of, and the other, so the, the two, probably the two biggest subplots, other than the, you know, the construction of the, the secret cities... Um, is Aravel and her farewell tour and her choice that lies before her and uh, the um, the exiled dwarves, the petty dwarves. Yeah, because uh, apparently um, just building cities isn't super good TV. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have it on pretty good authority that that's Civic the case. Planning. Ooh, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean... It, I don't know. My little brother loves to watch other people play Minecraft. <laughs> it's not the same thing. <laughs> it's, it's definitely not. It's not the same thing. 
<laughs> my kids um, watch some of the same videos, I bet, and it's not the same thing. <laughs> I mean, um, you, you know, like it basically would be about an hour of C-SPAN, essentially, is what you'd point out. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, again, not great TV. So in order to kind of get into the Gondolin plot, we spent a lot of time with um, with Arathel. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, to get into the building of Nargothron, we used the uh, the Petty Dwarves, which we had alluded to earlier in the season. So they don't come out of nowhere, which, which yeah. is good. That was the first question that I wanted to ask, because as usual, I've forgotten everything that came before. Um, or rather, I remember our discussions of the of the petty dwarves, but I don't remember earlier in the season, uh, like if we just if we had made the decision to move them and their story entirely here. So what what have we included already uh, about? So, so the first time Galadriel goes to um, Doria, mm-hmm. Norn sees her and decides to spontaneously tell Mablon the story of the Petty Dwarfs. Ah, uh, right. When they're talking so, about, like, hey, what's wrong with her, right? Right. So yeah. it's it's Norn's comment of, this person looks really ambitious and therefore dangerous, and you should probably get rid of her. <laughs> um, and all the Noldor with her. Like, Norn, Norn's commentary there is very pointed, right. but because he's telling a story about someone else, it doesn't come across as impolite. Right. Right. Maybe. And... It also kind of toys with the whole um, because there's another dwarf who's going to be staring at Galadriel in a completely different way. Yes, and uh, Mavlung in that scene actually accuses Norn of being smitten by her, right. um, which of course is not the case. But it was just kind of fun to right. kind of play around with that a little right. bit. A fun little inside foreshadowing joke. Yes. Um. The so. When we were talking about the Penny Dwarves, um, moving them to the back end of the season like this is, I, I would consider, kind of a risky move mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to make. Um, it might have been a little bit less... Like they would seem a little bit less like the monster of the week, I think, if their plot had a little bit more room to breathe. Um, but this is where we're at. Where you know, yeah. at, as soon as we put the the dagger Aglareb, um in like the last third of the season, right. this was what was going to happen. So yeah, yeah. Um, well, and it's hard because. I, I totally hear what you mean, you know, that if uh, to give their uh, that room to breathe uh, image seems a good one to me. Um, but at the same time, we don't have too much like we don't have much more story. I mean, we could make some more story, presumably to give mm-hmm. to them. But there's just not much plot that we have for them right now. And if we added more. They're they're gonna be. I mean, the whole point of the petty elves, of petty dwarves, is that they're marginalized, right? Um, yeah. So we're, we're not. They're not gonna. We're not gonna be coming back to them a lot. You know, we're, they're gonna come right. up on, in several times. But if we were to have worked, you know, a three or four episode arc mm-hmm. into the story of Meme and the petty dwarves, I almost feel like that would have been false advertising. You know. Well, we could have. We could definitely have gotten more of the dwarvish perspective here. Maybe had Norn come off as a little bit less of a, you know. Um, 
<laughs> Norn is a racist old man in this episode. Right. And there is no getting around that. He yeah, right. Right. is yeah. blatantly so. So we have right. made the choice to take a guy who started out his time on our show as someone bridging cultures and reaching out and being an ambassador. And this is how he ends. Yeah. And this is well, the last we of him. And, and, and I think it, it's easy to kind of call this specifically racism. It's definitely bigotry. I, I yeah. would definitely. Yeah. Um, but these are, these are people from home. So it's not like, you know, these guys like, you know, they all have red hair, so they're all evil, or right. or something like that. Right. Although um, some of them probably do, because some of them are probably doors of Nograd originally. That's right. Probably. So right. just, but that's just not what makes them bad. That's the thing. right. Right. <laughs> no, I, right. physically become lesser than dwarves. Like I'm pretty sure there's lines in the book about how they're less powerful than dwarves. They're smaller and weaker than dwarves. So there might be some physiological differences there. But that's not really what Norn is basing his assessment of the petty dwarves right. on. He's basing his assessment of the petty dwarves on their history and the fact that they were criminals. Right, right. He, he has um, reasons, but his rhetoric is pretty. Oh yeah, all inclusive of the entire group, children, relatives of the guilty party. Everybody should just die. I mean, he's pretty yep, hardcore. Yeah. Yes. Uh, of course, the the alternative that... to this would be to put any of these thoughts in Finrod's mouth. So it had to be Norn. Exactly. <laughs> and and the thing is, so I I really I don't like the so when a TV show is working with something like racism or slavery or something like that, um, I really dislike it when in order to like, you know, reach modern audiences you know, a show is just basically kind of soft peddling the whole thing, right? Like, uh, um, I, I, I think it's, um, th- I mean, there are like bigots are a thing like that happens, yeah. you know, bigotry yeah. is often a cultural norm. Like that's normal. Um, yeah. And sometimes it comes from people you don't expect it from also. Exactly. And it's totally, so yeah, the idea that like every, you know, like if you're if you're telling a story or showing a you know do, do, doing a film from um uh you know from like the the the, the antebellum south that like every white slaveholder has to also be a horrible person you know um because they're slave owners and so therefore horrible right because that's horrible so they have to be horrible so but like yeah to show people who are like good people and like characters that you like but they're also bigots like they have this you know like like, it's just it's part of who they are, and you don't like, like John that. Wayne in The Searchers. Yeah, wait, who? Like I've seen John Wayne in The Searchers. Oh, okay, yeah, you know, like they, I've seen a lot of criticism leveled on this character who's clearly racist. Like it's obvious that he's racist, mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. film I feel goes out of its way to point out that that's bad. Yeah, but they don't like the fact that he's portrayed sympathetically yes. at all. Exactly, and, like. D- d- he could still do good and heroic things, even if he has this kind of evil mindset in this area. Exactly. I mean, there 
the world's history is full of lots of people who have been good and admirable in many ways, except for the fact that they're also bigots in other ways. You know, it's it's like that's that's just that's in fact the way the world is. Um, and one of the artistic challenges, I think, is exactly, Nick, as you were describing, um, you don't have to make every character who is the voice of the bigotry, right, that you are depicting. Um, it's it's okay for them to be sim- – you can make them sympathetic without being an apologist for the bigotry. Um, right. So, yeah. I, Which is I, an important I, distinction. We are not – we do not think that – you know, bigotry against the petty dwarves is totally cool. No, just throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think, I think uh, my f- feeling about the script was that I thought it walked that line really, really well. I mean, as you know, Maria, as you were saying, Norn's bigotry is absolutely unapologetic. I mean, that line, Rihanna, that line about uh, how much time it takes to scrub mold from stone, <laughs> I was like, oh, man! Oh! <laughs> that was... That was, uh, that was intense. Um, yeah, you get the feeling that Mavalong needed to go, like, soak in a hot tub for a little <laughs> right, while. Right, exactly. After <laughs> yeah. Good yeah. thing they or, have a hot tub in your ass. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's a good thing that Thingol's got his hot tub. <laughs> which yeah. the Sons of Finarfin are no longer allowed to enjoy. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> There's a little sign there that says, no Angron. That's right. Yeah, he's revoking his uh, his 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 membership to the spa. Um, we 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 reserve the right to refuse admittance to anyone, especially <laughs> Noldor. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, but oh man, so, I, so, I, so I, we like have the sitting kinsling. We'll have to show the Fanorians like jumping in the hot tub. Right. Yeah. The the anyway, like I said, I loved the unapologetic bigotry of Norn. I thought that that was very. But yet, again, there's no question that um, that the narrative on the whole, you know, the narrative of the episode on the whole is showing, um, that this, um, uh, is not okay. You know, like that, I don't, I, I did not think this was like a, you know, pro bigotry episode, um, at all. Uh, despite the fact that, you know, Norn, who has been, as you say, has been a sympathetic character from the beginning, um, even really like one of the shining exemplars among the dwarves, right? Right, right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, essentially, I would have liked to have a, had a little bit more time to show just how ingrained in the dwarves' culture this was. Like, we basically had to put all of that on Norn. Yeah. I would have liked to have spread it out a little bit, maybe get Azagal involved. But, it, like, I think that what we have works. Um, and like you said, it, it's not a huge part of the season arc, I, and I, I certainly yeah. wouldn't suggest it should be. Yeah. Um, but I think that what we have works in the in the context of what we're trying to do here. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I really like about this, and this to me is is a really provocative element, right? Finrod's ignorance, I think, is really provocative. Um, Provocative in the sense of, I mean, talk about applicability, right, to external conditions into the modern world. Um, Finrod, you know, he's unaware of his privilege. Is that what you're? Well, in a sense, yeah, or rather, like you know, there are a lot of people, right, who have inherited 
It's it's not just being unaware of your privilege. That's kind of what I'm talking about, but not a hundred percent. It's uh, more like people who, you know, like uh, you know, white Americans growing up with not even like you know enjoying like thinking about like defending our rights to our land and like growing up in ignorance of you know, the transactions with the Native Americans, right, which led to that state of affairs, yeah. right? Um, uh, there's there's a lot of, you know, because his situation is a real thing. Like, that's that's a real factor in the modern world. People who are beneficiaries of acts like the kicking out of, uh, of the petty dwarves from Nargothrond, but he's not culpable. He doesn't know. You know, he doesn't know. Maybe he would have chosen otherwise. Who knows what he would have done had he been there? Maybe he would have done the same thing. Um, maybe he wouldn't have done the same thing. Um, but it's it it kind of it puts a little asterisk next to um, the glory of Nargothrond, right? Um, which is not enough to tear it down, which is not enough to right. undermine him or to undermine Nargothrond. But that's that's a really good thing. I, I think it's, it's, it's a really subtle, it's a really powerful kind of thing, just as, you know, the, the, you know, what, um, you know, America has done over the course of its history with native Americans puts a little asterisk yeah. next to all the things that modern people want to say about this wonderful land of ours. Right. Right. Um, right. Again, it doesn't change that like many of the things that America has done have been really cool. Um, yeah. But like asterisk. I mean, man on the moon. Awesome. <laughs> Right, you know, but but yeah, but there's always going to be this asterisk next right. to it, and again, so there's allowed to be uncomfortable history. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I mean, you're going to run into it at various times. We're making Finrod not aware. Will he eventually learn what happened? Will he have any contact with the Petty Doors in the future? Like we, we've definitely left this open that we could revisit this at a later time if we chose. Yeah, um, we yeah. also left a. Uh, petty dwarves buried in what becomes Nargothrond. Yes. Yeah. Because they had been living there for some time and that was a burial ground in there. So uh, <laughs> the idea that the the petty dwarves like, have still left their claim on that land and they still have stakes there. It, it, we, we left that a little open-ended. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that. Um, and that is really interesting. Um at risk of digressing too much in this direction, uh, obviously we need Meme and the Petty Dwarves when we get to Turin, right? And then ultimately when we, you know, Turin and Hurin um, and, you know, Meme's ultimate death in Nargothrond, back in Nargothrond, claiming the, the Horde of Glaurung, um, that's the major moment. You know, those, you know, from... Uh, uh, you know, Turin and Amon-Ruth down to Hurin and Nargothrond. That's the major role, really the only role, of the Petty Dwarves in the narrative of the Silmarillion. Um, That's still a ways away. We've got several seasons between now and then. Um, Do you guys foresee any... I mean, as you were thinking this through, did, did you have thoughts about 
what kinds of stories we might want to give them or, or, or ways, even if they're sort of smallish ways in which we would have them and we could have them involved? Well, I would kind of like to keep them uninvolved because mm-hmm. what the book says when the petty doves just show up randomly in the right. Turin story is that they had been almost completely forgotten even yes. by the elves. Yes. So, like, one of the things I did on the message boards when I was preparing for this was I looked through the children of Hurin and I tried to find evidence that Bella would know who the petty dwarves were to see if he would recognize me or recognize him as a petty dwarf. And like, I couldn't find anything concrete that would say Bella would definitely know who the petty dwarves were. Like it's not mentioned that all of the Cinder had contact with them. It's mentioned that they mistook them for beasts and hunted them at some point, and that stopped. But it doesn't say who specifically was involved in that. So I think if we just have the Petty Dwarves in this episode, and then they sort of disappear, there might be little tiny hints of them like in the background, not the main focus of an episode. But uh, I don't think they should come back for another storyline until they show up with Turin. And then we have to basically have them explaining who they are because the characters in the show have either forgotten about them or don't know about them in the first place. And the viewers have actually forgotten about them as well, which sort of helps with the conveying that this has been a very long time and these people have been forgotten. Yeah. And also I, imagine that this whole thing has made Mablung feel very uncomfortable. And I can't imagine that he spends a lot of time talking to a lot of people about this. Cause he's the only witness really. I was just he's thinking that really yeah. knows. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm sure he told Thingle what happened, but you know, like the fact that he doesn't tell Finrod suggests that he's embarrassed. Yes. By the situation. Yes. And by the way, even just our depiction of Mablung, you know, the really uncomfortable one in this situation, that too, I think is a really interesting thing to do. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, it, I, you know, I can imagine somebody, you know, reading this or, or watching it and being like, oh, you know, Mablung shouldn't just like stand for that, right? Mablung should have done something. Mablung should have. But, you know, Life is harder than that, you know? Yeah. It's awkward. First of all, he's in a really awkward position because Thingol promised this place right. to Finrod, right? So, you know, he's like, so he's in, he's got a significant means and ends problem. And it, he's not the one at the, he's not the decision maker there either, right? right? So he's in a legitimately awkward position, just like politically speaking. Right. Um, he would have to go back to Thingol. Yeah. And by the time that happened, it's done. It's done. Exactly. The dwarves are there with their axes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But of course, the other thing is, is that, again, it's easy to say, but it's easy to say like, well, you know, you must stand up to bigotry wherever you see it. But we've all had, I I mean, many of us, I'm sure, have had friends who are bigots um, and who are like Norn generally good people, except they're also bigots in this one other respect. And like <laughs> dealing with people like that, like standing yeah. up against people is not as easy as people can kind right. of make that. Especially sound. So, especially since it, it often happens too quickly for you to really like, by the time you even realize what's, what somebody's saying. Yes. Like 
you feel like a heel for kind of like go like like hang on, hang on let's let's go back a few a few right. minutes in this conversation right did you actually just say you know right it's very difficult it's 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 a very difficult situation and again i you know so so nick again thinking back to the reference you were making about people objecting to that one character being depicted sympathetically despite the fact of being a bigot and whatever i i often feel that reactions um Reactions like this, uh, to, you know, when 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 bigotry or racism or something like that is depicted in a in, in a show, a lot of the outcry seems to be oriented towards an assumption of like a really black and white depiction, right? Like this is just like it should be it should be like everything associated with bigotry and racism should be obviously wrong and should obviously you know be suppressed and like anyone who is good and sympathetic should be standing up against it, right? And it's like. Dude, like, right. what world do you live in? Like, we don't live in that yeah. world. And it's not even, yeah. it's, it's like, it's harder than that. Things are much more that's, complicated. That's the world of Harry Potter. Because yeah. that is the <laughs> one, no, I mean, in all seriousness, that is right. the one criteria for whether someone is on the good right. guys team or the bad guys team. Right. right. And that's, that's where you, that's how you can handle that. And we're not creating the world of Harry Potter. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that was a super awkward element of uh, to the point where her choice to embrace that made Voldemort's character intrinsically self-contradictory and perplexing. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, uh, well, let's not get into that too much. But uh, but but I agree. It's it's that is a way to handle it. But it's it creates, I think way more difficulties than much better. I think if we're going to deal with this and we should, and why wouldn't we um, let's deal with what's, let's try to, let's try to deal with this complex issue in a complex way. And right. Mablung just standing there being a, ultimately Mablung is guilty of inaction. Right. Right. Um, but he's right. sitting there being like, Oh, what? I, oh gosh, I'm uncomfortable, but I, Oh, but I shouldn't. And Oh, well, that happened. Now that happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's uh, uncomfortable and he's not like for swearing his friend, you know, he's not right, going right. to, uh, you know, what, what, what it's, 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 it's tough. It's tricky, you know? Yeah. And what, you know, when, um, when I was looking over this, it occurred to me, you know, like this is actually one of the more game of Thrones episodes that we've done. And then all of a sudden I realized, wait, no, this is the reverse of game of Thrones. Cause game of Thrones is, most of the time, it's about bad people who occasionally do good things. Yes. Whereas this is a complete reverse. This is generally good people who still do bad things. Right. And that, I feel like, that's a lot closer to reality in, yes. in my mind. Yes. Like, there's there's no mustache, mustache twirling going on here. I don't know why I can't say mustache anymore, but yeah, no, you're right. There's there are no complete villains in this episode. Norn isn't. He's the worst. You know, he comes off worst certainly, but even he's not just horrible. Um, and not only is he like generally okay apart from being a bigot, uh, but uh, there's also we can see he's got personal issues, right? The story of the murder of his brother helps us to understand how could somebody whose whole life, whose whole career has been, you know, is build, you know, Nick, as you said, building bridges between cultures, right? Yeah. How can he be so totally blind about this? And right, because he's answer. not a, he's not a mere xenophobe. Right. Exactly. He's you know. been he's been the poster child for non uh, xenophobia. You know. Yeah. 
Like that's been his role. And yet it, it fits. It works, right? Why would somebody who has been a professional anti-xenophobe his whole life be uh, so bigoted, uh, so unquestioningly, unwaveringly bigoted on this one point? Because he's got issues, which has created this blind spot for him. To him, this is not even the same kind of question, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um. Anything else about the Norn Petty Doors thing that we we want to bring out here? Uh, okay, so the last... Because um, this was one of the most like kind of co-equal plots episodes that we've done, where, yes. where the Nargothron and the Gondolin sections were really kind of part of the same thing. Like, I mean, they, they were partners essentially as um as subplots in the episode yeah yeah agreed um uh so okay um i guess i had a couple questions about the end the end of the meme okay well actually two things one small and one bigger the smaller thing we have to be careful not to make meme too old like when he was like getting out the walker at the end, I was like, "Wait, it's still going to be a while, but we, he still needs to be alive, right?" We don't. This isn't the same meme that Turin will encounter. Okay, we decided this that's going to be that's going to be another meme. Yeah. And they are passing the name meme along, like the name Durin is passed along, even okay. though they aren't really reborn meme. They're sort of emulating that, trying to create their own clan, and that's something we'll probably bring out later okay. on. Okay, that's great. That's good. I just wanted to. Like I, I, was, I, I was getting a little nervous about that. I'm like, uh, we're we're going to be running through memes at a shocking rate, but that's fine. That's that's excellent. So my second question is, the it wasn't obvious to so we had that scene with meme and the other petty dwarves about what to do, right? Um, you know, the, the little like crisis meeting that they had, um. When I read that and moved, I, 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 I emerged from that sort of thinking that they were going to fight or at least that it was likely that they were going to fight. Um, so that was kind of a goal of right. that episode of, yeah. of that scene. But, so, but I guess it left me with the question. So what was their plan? Like when they, when they didn't fight, so I was expecting a fight to break out and a fight didn't break out, which is like, so the, the raising and disappointment of that expectation was fine. That easily can be just part of the drama of the episode. I have no objection to that. But when we found them in the end, when they were discovered, like in the, you know, what, I don't know, the petty dwarf panic room there in the depths of Nargothrond, um, it wasn't clear to me, like, what their plan was, right? Like, what, um, what's their, um, um, what's their game? You know, like to, where the, their plan was to be like, if we withdraw to these inner chambers, maybe they won't notice us and we'll continue living out the rest of our lives in here. And the people who are going to be taking a permanent residence here aren't going to notice that we're here. Um, yeah. So their their goal is to hide uh-huh. and okay. try to outlast whatever elves and dwarves are at their gate. Because they don't necessarily know what Norn and are up to. They don't know about Nargothrond. Right. So... It's like, surely these guys aren't going to stick around too okay. long. So they're making us clear out. But maybe if we just hide, we can come back and reclaim it when they're gone. Right. And then they just never leave. And now they're trapped back there. And it, yeah. Okay. It would be kind of like if 
you know, 10 years from now, someone was hiking in the woods of like upstate New York and found like a previously uncontacted enclave of like Mohicans. Right. Right. You know, which I, I get, like, I understand where you're, where you're coming from, where you, where could they really have legitimately expected that that was going to work? Um, Mm. Yeah, but but I you're I mean, but Marie is right. They don't know about Nargathrond, right? They don't know that an elf lord, an immortal elf lord, is coming to make this place his primary refuge, right? I mean, like that's. Um, they may not even know that the elves are immortal. They may not have had yeah. contact with the elves enough to understand that about them. Sure. Also, they may n- know enough about these caves to know that there's nothing really worth mining there. So they right. probably are just assuming that the dwarves are going to figure that out and move on. Maybe some reference in the discussion that they have amongst themselves, maybe some reference to, to, to more of this kind of thing. Like, like, what are they even doing here? What are they even doing? Right, to show their right. ignorance of... Because that, that would make more sense. The idea yeah. that, like... Nargothrond is going to happen, but like for some reason they're never going to notice us living down here. Uh, it just it was it was not clear to me what their end game was. Um, so I mean the the dwarves of Khazadum didn't notice a Balrog living in their basement for a while. <laughs> one presume, so well, that's different though. He was he has, that's different. Um, that, that Balrog was trying to do the exact same thing that the petty dwarves are trying to do. <laughs> right. He's like maybe these dark dwarves are gonna are gonna will leave eventually if I just stay quiet. Yeah. Gee, what is this shiny metal all around me? I have no idea. <laughs> right. But whatever it is, I promise sure they probably won't notice. Um, but I agree. If we give a little bit more setup to their plan, yeah, their, just their actions will at least make sense to the viewer. And that can be done without totally undermining the, the suspense of like... Right, right. Doing... we don't have to give away the surprise, yeah. but yeah. at least give them a reason for what thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, certainly the thing that I really liked about the... Uh, the surprisingly non-violent uh, uh, plan of the Petty Dwarves um, was that it ended up... I mean, again, the way that it made the bigotry of Norn completely, obviously not supported by the by the narrative, right? Um, that was the clearest thing. Like, the Petty Dwarves not only um, had been minding their own business living here in the first place, but they responded like as positively as they could like without just moving on right wanting to keep their new homeland um they acted on that in the most you know unobjectionable and nonviolent way they possibly could and so when they're turfed out after that they look even more like victims than they would have done um before so so yeah 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 we we wanted their victim status to be very very clear so that when Norn was saying that they weren't, it was obvious to the viewer <laughs> that the, we're not supporting Norn's viewpoint. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So that was great. That was great. Um, okay. Uh, good. Good. Um, let's see. Um, so, yeah. So let's move on to the Gondolin storyline. Um So there were a couple of points about this that 
um, I really struggled with as we were moving into our discussions about mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Um, the episode. So I know back when you guys were talking about Turgon and his visions. Yeah. Um, I know from listening to one of the sessions that I happened to not be present for that you talked about wanting um, him to know that Olmo was involved. Right. Um, now, per, now part of that is to kind of set up the fact that almost involves so it's it's not completely out of nowhere that you know that that this one guy in particular hasn't abandoned the mm-hmm. Noldor. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I would say that is we we did have a conversation between um, Manwe and almost specifically to address that that actual thing back right. you know back. Uh, in, in back a couple of seasons ago, yeah, and so I'm I'm not entirely certain that like I I feel like the audience in seeing all the water motifs around those those visions is certainly going to pick up on that. What I'm less certain of is that the elves are immediately going to assume that it's Elmo. The Noldor didn't have a whole lot of contact with him prior to their exile. Um, I I just don't see a I don't see that they really have any reason to assume that it's him and B um, I feel like it kind of pulls away some of Turgon's agency in a way um, Mm -hmm. where he's just following almost instructions the whole way through and even you know like obviously he's going to appear and (laughs) you know like there's that right Um, and once that like but I feel like that kind of just confirms that he's on the that he's going in the right direction yes yeah um and also, I like even if Turgon suspects that he's getting these visions from Olmo, having everybody else kind of talking about, oh well, Olmo says to do this, and Olmo said through Turgon to do this. Again, it's kind of it's making it about their trust in Olmo rather than their trust in Turgon. Yes, which is a direction we could go in, but I feel like Turgon's a more interesting character if he's able to kind of drive that kind of devotion um, himself. Agreed. This is what I really liked about, I believe it was the conversation between Arthel and Fingolfin and Fingen, um, when they were talking about Turgon's interpretation of dreams and stuff, right? Um, First of all, I do agree that it is perfectly legitimate to have the Noldors... So, like, if you were to say to one of the Noldor at this point, almost sent me a vision of what we should do for the Noldor to respond to that by saying, what, really? Like, why would he do that? And why should we, like, uh, okay. I mean, like, for them to feel like that's kind of out of left field, because as you say, they did not have a great relationship with Olmo. He was never their guy. Um, so it might seem a little random for them to be getting messages from Olmo. That's not going to, you know, it's not like the reaction is going to be like, oh, a message from Olmo. Well, that obviously, like, we should trust that implicitly in all ways. Um, uh, That's fine. I I agree. Like, showing some resistance to that, to be like, who is Olmo to us? And why does he care? Like, what's his game in all of this? What on earth is going on? Um, Yeah. is I think a perfectly is perfectly legitimate to have some of the Noldor making that response. But thinking about what you're saying about 
having this to make sure that this is really Targan's story and not a, just an almost story. Um, I think that the the note that was struck there in the discussion between Ardell and Fingolfin and Fingen is is really good because yes, like yes, Omo initiates this. He grants the visions, right? And yes, it is true that Turgon is following the guidance of Omo. But that's a Turgon story. Like that I mean, think about the things that have to happen in order for Turgon to be following Omo's advice, right? First of all, he has to not he, he has the vision, he has to not dismiss the vision. That could easily happen, right? He has to perceive that he is, in fact, that what he's receiving is, in fact, a message uh, from the Valar. He has to furthermore perceive that this is a message from Omo specifically. Finrod doesn't get that. Does Finrod get that? I don't think Finrod gets <laughs> that. Yes, I, I think he does. Does he get it? I, I think that the... But the way that the dream comes from Omar, I think that's something that they both understand and they both trust him. How much they make of it to other people okay. depends. I think personally, they both know that Omo is the one who's guiding them. Right. Okay. I, I don't think like it wouldn't make sense for Omo to send them mysterious visions that they don't know the source of because if his goal is to help the Noldor and to get them to establish these cities, he doesn't want to be too ambiguous about it. Not too ambiguous about the instructions. Right, but the source of the instructions is less necessary than the explicitness thereof. Um, That is to say, you know, almost not looking for props. You know, he's not he's not trying to raise his own profile uh, necessarily by doing this. It's fine if Finrod understands that. That's fine. I think it might actually be cool. Like if Finrod knows, Finrod could be saying something more vague, something like. Uh, I believe that the Valar have sent me a message. Like, he can tell that this comes from the Valar. He believes that this comes from the Valar. But he doesn't He doesn't get that. Whereas it's Turgon who has the further insight to say this is Olmo. This is Olmo at work here. I think that I think that this is Olmo sending us a message and I'm not sure why. But he, he, he also understands why. Um, and is given the follow-up vision. Uh, Turgon's, one of Turgon's character elements from the beginning has been he has been the more kind of priestly prophetic foresighted one right so the very fact that he is both sensitive to this guidance and responsive to this guidance and perceptive about not only where it just like the mere fact that it comes from Omo but he's going to understand in a clearer way, he's going to be more of a part of Olmo's plans moving forward, right? And part of that, I think, is um, uh, is going to be connected to the fact that he is um, he's more, like, he, he gets it better, right? He is, uh, he is a more he he's a better receptacle for this plan. He's he his he 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 receives it more clearly. He gets it better. It is a Turgon story. Like how he uh, how in Turgon, Olmo finds the one best suited among all of the Noldor to be his Olmo's partner 
in the plans that Olmo is trying to bring forward uh, to undermine Morgoth and to help and support the elves. Not everybody's going to be perceptive to it. Not everybody perceptive of it. Not everyone's going to be open to it in the same way. But Turgon is, and therefore, and I do think because I do think we can introduce through that some di- because Nargothrond and Gondolin do operate differently in these ways, right? Finrod succeeds in doing the basic thing that Olmo instructs in the vision, right? Like, hey, bad times are coming. Make a strong and secret refuge uh, for people to flee to. And he succeeds. He builds Nargothrond, and it does last longer than most of the rest of Beleriand. That's fine. That happens. Um, But um, Turgon's relationship with Olmo and Olmo's plans is much closer, right? Gondolin is more than just another strong and secret refuge like Nargothrond, right? Um, there's that additional element of prophecy and the, the one that is to come and the, the, you know, the armor for Tuor and, you know, the one, you know, and the prophecy of who, of, of who or, uh, in the fens of Serech, right. And all of those things in Eärendil's, of course, in the original fall of Gondolin, Eärendil's explicitly sort of messianic birth. Um, uh, there's just there's much more to the relationship between Turgon and the plans of Olmo. <clears throat> so showing that he gives it to the two of them, right? The two Olmo has chosen Turgon and Finrod as the two who are most likely to who are best suited to be his agents, right, for the plans that he is trying to bring forward. But it's a Turgon story, and Turgon remains the hero of this story and not just a pawn of Olmo because it's his response. It's his insight, discernment, and faithfulness, um, which enables him to be or to become the instrument, the primary instrument of Olmo's primary plan uh, for undermining Morgoth. And we will see that relationship we're already in these two episodes seeing the relationship between Turgon and Olmo grow, right? From in, in ways that Finrod and Olmo's relationship isn't going to grow. We know that Finrod, you know, Olmo is going to um, uh, is going to reach out to Nargothrond again, but it's it's different, right? Finrod's already dead for one thing, um, but uh, uh, but again, Nargothrond is never going to have the same role. Olmo's not going to forget it. He's going to send messengers a second time uh, to it. Um, but it it doesn't play the same role, and that's and and again that in I think the way that we can direct this story could be down to Turgon, and that's what makes it his story. Do you see what I mean, Nick? Um. Yeah. No, I definitely see what you mean. Um, well, another thing is that Olmo is in no way forcing Turgon to act on his mm-hmm. dreams and visions and go mm-hmm. build Gondolin. He shows him a warning. He gives him suggestions. He gives him guidance. He offers to help him. But Olmo never says, Turgon, you need to do this. And even the guidance is in, um, is in response to Turgon's actions, right? Turgon doesn't set out to find Gondolin because Olmo begins to guide him towards Gondolin. Olmo begins to guide Turgon towards Gondolin because Turgon has set out, right? And set out sort of in faith, right? To find it. And when he does that, Olmo responds by sending the birds and helping him, right? In ways that he does not help Finrod, 
right? Finrod gets zero help from Olmo in identifying uh, Nargothrond. Oh, and look how that worked out, right? Finrod ends up with the asterisk next to Nargothrond, right? Uh, And the Trail of Tears of the Petty Dwarves, right? Because he went through completely, like, mundane political channels in order to find his secret and safe refuge, which is still a fulfillment, like a heeding of Olmo's warning, but it's a totally different... the, the, The response, Finrod's response to the vision is in that way a totally different flavor when Turgon says, okay... One of the Valar, and I think it's Olmo, is trying to tell me something. I'm going to trust him that he has a plan and that I'm going to be a part of that plan. And I'm willing to be a part of that plan. So I'm going to wander off with my people and I'm going to go, since I know it's Olmo, I'm going to go um, uh, uh, to the Wells of Sirion. Right? I'm going to go to this and, and I'm going to seek guidance there. And he gets it. When he does that, right, in response to his initial uh, insight and faithfulness. Um, so, again, it still is, even even with Olmo not calling the shots, because I absolutely agree, Rihanna, and it's very important that um, Olmo is not, he's not, like, dictating, right? You know, it's not like, you know, Turgon has a, a calm feed, right, where Olmo is telling him what to do, Um uh, nor is he even giving him instructions until he instructs him to leave the armor, right? Um, uh, but um, it's not only not that it, it, not only is Olmo not giving instructions, which he which he is following. Almost apart from that first vision, almost not initiating. It's Turgon who's initiating, um, and Olmo responding. So I, obviously, um, there doesn't have to be any compulsion. On right, on almost part for Turgon to be kind of removed from the driver's seat of the decision making process in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. That isn't quite so much what bothers me so much as that he's certain enough that it's almost that he goes around telling everybody that it's almost, and that's the thing that everybody around him is putting their trust in you know everybody is talking about Trigon's visions as if they are completely from Olmo as if they as if they know that uh, that they're from Olmo when well, do they think Turgon is lying to them I don't think he would tell them because I'm certain because enough they- to, to like there's no way he could know that for certain until Olmo shows up personally right so but, no but re- again that, that's why I think that- I'm getting visions from Olmo yeah yeah Again, I think the, the dynamic there, and again, this is the thing that I was saying that I really like about the Fingolfin and Fingen discussion, is Turgon saying, Omo is sending me a vision, and this is what we should do in response to it. That involves two separate leaps of faith. If you, are, if you hear Turgon saying that, and you're like, okay, Turgon, that's totally the way to go then— If you say that, then you're making two leaps of faith, right? Leap of faith number one, Turgon knows what the heck he's talking about, right? Turgon's not deluded about the fact that this is coming from Olmo. And two, Turgon is correct to act on that message in these ways, right? Because as you said, Nick, I mean, who's Olmo, right? I mean, did they ever interact with Olmo? He almost never goes to Valinor, right? Did they ever even meet Olmo before? It's quite possible they haven't met Olmo before. 
I mean, even when they lived in Valinor, he's not one of the Valar that they hung out with. Right. right? So he would be – so for Omo and therefore also Omo's um, – not just his messages, but I mean his agenda, right, to be a mystery to them. Um, and therefore it, it would be totally plausible for somebody to say – Okay, maybe Olmo is telling you stuff, but that doesn't mean you should uh, you should follow that. I mean, Olmo's kind of a. I mean, he's weird. He hangs out by himself. That's strange. You know, he's is he on Team Manway exactly? I mean, like, do, do they know that for sure? Are they confident in that? Anyway, so um, Turgon asserting that doesn't spoil the game. Doesn't make it not about him. It's still people have to have trust in Turgon's judgment, right? Both his insight and his judgment. Yes, this is Olmo, and yes, this is a good idea, so I'm doing it. Um, they have to be on board with both of those things, which means they have to trust Turgon. It's still a big deal for Turgon to do that. If this were, if the Rondor had come to him and said, I've come straight from Manway and he has this message for you, you know, then, Nick, that's when I see that kind of pro- Then we have, like, a loss of agency, right? Because who's going who's gonna to gainsay that? Um, but when you're getting dreams, which you believe to be messages from the Valar that you don't know who he is and what he's up to and why you should trust him, and you decide to, A, believe that and B, act on it, there's not a loss of agency in the same way. I, I just feel like the a level of certainty that everybody seems to have it just like it doesn't see it doesn't pass the muster for me. Anyway. I agree that we could. It have raises more a lot of red flags in my mind. Right, I, <laughs> like I, everybody's. I, like, oh yeah, sure, Omo, absolutely. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, I, th- there I do think that we 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 could introduce. In fact, I think it would be useful to have a couple different versions of some dissenting and un, uneasy voices. Right, um, uh, to have somebody say like, "Okay, what if it is from Olmo?" Like, uh, he's kind of sketchy, isn't he? What's up with that? Why should we obey? Um, and two, to have some people openly questioning this. Like, sounds like you know Turgon has been, you know, is kind of going off the deep end, right? Um, uh, which would have right. to be like all of that would have to be set up also in additional scenes in through episode nine. Um, you know, but like, we can we can go back and tweak some of the dialogue around some of the stuff to make sure it's not the same note getting hit fifteen times, and instead get different nuanced notes each time it comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that the overall impression we want the viewer to have is that Turgon is a visionary. Yes. Yes. That he he has this insight, he has a plan, he's working towards this plan, he's getting other people on board with the plan, they're all pretty excited about the plan, like, Turgon makes this all happen, right. but if we don't portray him as a visionary, and we let other people be talking about it and doing things, and just being like, oh yeah, dreams from Alma, you can lose sight of that. So it is right. true that we do need to keep the focus there, but... Well, and especially, I mean, the other thing to keep, and this did come out in the dialogue, but I think it's something that could even maybe be emphasized more. It's counterintuitive, right? I mean, he's being asked to do this, frankly, countercultural thing, right? While everybody else is hunkering down for the siege, uh, 
and, and again, this did come up in the in the narrative several times. I thought this was this was you know uh, the 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 objection that was done most justice uh, in the course of the episode. People saying like, "Yeah, our leaguer would be working out a lot better if Target were helping instead of not helping and going away." Um, it's it would be easy for people to misunderstand that for him to look like a coward, you know, for him to look like um, he's just abdicating or. Uh, uh, how defecting is a little too strong, but deserting. Um, it could look like a desertion. It could feel like a desertion to many. And it's going to take trust in Turgon, which not everyone is going to have t- on the same level, right, uh, to uh, to buy in, to accept, to not feel resentful for what he's done, for the void that he has left um, in the once very populous and now abandoned country that he leaves behind him. Um, so yeah, I think, so two questions with this. We got, we got some good general skepticism from the Feanorians where we might expect it, um, where they are the ones who are, I think, most likely as I think they did in act three, um, they're most likely to express the, so Turgon is deserting. Cool. Right. That's here. We thought you guys were on the useless side anyway, and now Turgon's going full useless and, and completely running away. Okay, right, well. So the Feanorians have to pick up the slack again. What else is new, right? You know, for the Feanorians to be talking like that makes perfect sense. Um, Fingolfin and Fingon. I really liked... The thing that I liked about that conversation is that what was emphasized was their belief in Turgon. They're willing to accept what Arathel is telling them because they have faith in Turgon's insight um, uh, and his foresight and kind of prophetic ability there. Um, But one of them, perhaps, maybe Fingon, should voice some of these uncertainties. Um, What if Fingon... Well, see, the problem with Fingon, though, is that he prayed to Manway and an eagle got sent to help him. So he should trust that Arth. Right. He, he should be uh, he's All the more reason for him not to. <laughs> but he's an exiled mill, though. He, he, he might, like, there is trust. But again, how far does that trust go? And also, as someone who received, I mean, the, the very simplicity and overtness of the answer to his prayer, right? Um, he could be forgiven for saying something like, dude, take it from me, Right. When the Valar want to send help, they send an enormous bloody eagle in, right? It was not... When Manway assisted me in finding Mithros, there were no two ways about this, right? There was no room for interpretation here, right? He sent a ginormous talking eagle to help, right? Um, so for him to be like, but, you know, like, I had a dream and I think that, the, you know... So he could be forgiven for saying... I have experience. This is not how the Valar interact with us. It's true they do it rarely, but when they do, you don't miss it, right? Um, so I could see his own experience leading, and I'm not saying that that would necessarily be the argument that he would make, but he could be forgiven for thinking that. He could he could express doubts. Yeah, and not not in, not doubts in Turgon, but doubts in Almo, doubts in That's how what this I was will the one help the Noldor in general. You know, why is this a good plan? Personally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also the, hey, what do you mean my brother's leaving? Like, he's allowed to personally not like this idea. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
especially given that, you know, with Fingen and Fingolfin still living so close together, right? Um, Fingen's world now for the last century or so has been um, like he's part of the team. Like, that's who he is, right? He's part of the team. It's him and Fingal. And so Turgon already living off down in Nevras, way out by the coast, so far away, he didn't even make it to the, uh, to the Dagoraglareb in time. I know he had other issues, but still, you know, it comes up, uh, I think, appropriately. Um, so even as it is, living out way out by the coast in, in, in Nevras is Turgon's not being the same kind of member of the team that Fingon is, right? And for Turgon now to make the next step forward, yeah, as you say, Marie, that that can be an issue itself. Like I'm going to miss my brother, and I'm not. I'm a little. Uh, this makes me feel a little grumpy about the fact that my younger brother's not pulling his weight, um, and is fixing to pull a heck of a lot less of his weight uh, in uh, in this whole uh, defense of Beleriand thing. Um, again, now Fingen's objections would be overcome. Because he does know Turgon. And so at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, he's going to trust him, right? He, he can be talked around to belief in Turgon or to trusting, to being willing to trust Turgon. But, um, but I do agree, Nick, it might raise fewer flags if that, if, he, if that doubt, those doubts had to be overcome in him. Here's another question. And I know we talked about Aravel being the one in whom we were going to kind of distill the like her choice was going to be kind of you know synecdoche for the choice of all of the people have never asked to it to it to an extent um mm-hmm. but might we want to have any of his other counselors voicing uncertainty um they don't have to be anti right they don't have to be talk- laboriously talked around but somebody close to turgan raising a red flag you know, yeah. I mean, maybe the, the, th- that the might help too. Turgon's the kind of guy that people follow. Right. Um, right. The Gondolindrum are signing up for, hey, let's go to the secret place that you can never leave. Okay, Turgon, if you say so, let's all go. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. so there's that element of he's not surrounded by a lot of naysayers. <laughs> Turgon voted most likely to become a cult leader in his graduating high school class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's that element to Turgon's character. Um, and we don't want to have everyone else in the episode. That they're constantly getting pulled in by people like this. <laughs> like, Thingle did the same... Thingle, yeah, Thingle has the same trait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> has the same trait. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Rhiannon, you were wanting to, to say something? Well, I was going to say, we don't want to have too many people voicing negative opinions about Gondolin, because we don't want to make it seem that, despite all these concerns that people have, Turgon is still going to go yeah. through with Gondolin. We want yeah. to show that Gondolin is the correct decision for Turgon to be making, and the couple people who do have doubts are quickly overcome and there just overcome. aren't that many doubts to begin with because they have such faith yeah. in their leader and such faith in the Valar. Yeah. The solution to that is not to bring, not to not bring up objections. The solution to that is for those objections to be overcome. Is yes, you know, like satisfactorily like, overcome. Right, like having people bring up the their concerns mm-hmm. doesn't damage um, Turgon's case. 
right. if we appropriately answer those concerns. And that, and that I think, is the struggle because there's a lot of ways in which the move to Gondolin seems to a lot of people absolutely to be a little weird. And that's, um, so- yeah, exactly. Just as I was saying in my opening, you know, yes, like it's weird when you have to integrate it into the story. It's, it's a, it's a strange countercultural move on Turgan's part. And here's the other thing, um, Rhiannon, here's the other defense I would make about raising and answering objections. Um, It'll be particularly powerful for Arathel, I think, because Arathel is uncertain. But to have her, because she's the voice, right? She's the one who's who's answering all the objections, right? Right. Um, and so in responding to the objections of Fingolfin and Fingen, in responding to the objections of Kelligorm and Kurufin, she's also talking herself into it. Right. She's also talking. She's all because their objections. She she resonates with many of their objections. Um, right. They are speaking for a big part of her. And she is in responding to them right. is bringing herself to the point where she can accept it. And of course, the the objections that she has the most trouble overcoming actually come from Kurofin, which makes perfect sense, because, like, obviously he's he's going to figure out like all the chinks in her like rhetorical armor. And, of course, the answers to that don't come from her. They come from Amras. Right. Who, of course, plays a very critical role in, you know, in this episode. And Um, I did not see that coming. That was really uh interesting. I thought you might like that a little bit. I did. I did. Yeah, Amras in his yurt was really fascinating. Um, The totally countercultural Feanorian... that was that i i really liked that um and yeah and 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 the effect on Arthel, um i thought it was I, I i thought that was really cool so yeah I, I i i do think we can have we can give voice to some more of these objections um because we need to make sure not only that cuz not only do we need to plant not only do we need to convince our viewers that Turgon is not crazy, um, but we also need to convince our viewers that Arthel is really convinced. But at the same time, we need to lay the foundations for the doubts that Arthel is going to have later on. Right? When Arthel right. decides to leave, when she rethinks things after a while and begins to question the path that Turgon is on. Yeah, it's she, not just boredom. It's not just boredom. Uh, right. She is going to be having second thoughts about the entire project, and most importantly, she's not going to be totally wrong about that. Um, and so, making sure that we raise all of the issues now, not undermining Turgon at all, right? He is right to do this thing, but he is not always going to remain 100% right. Um, his path is going to diverge from the really, the almost road, right? Um, and Arathel is going to be the crucial character who is going to first draw our attention to the fact that Turgon isn't always right um, in how he decides to do things and what he decides to do. Um, and that's going to be so much fun. I can't wait for that. It's one of my favorite parts of season five that I'm most looking forward to is the Arathel mm-hmm. story. Uh, yeah. That is going to be so cool. 
Um, Me too. <laughs> that's right. I know. Trish has been. Uh, wait, I'm a course, huge fan of Arathel. Yes, we t- we tease Trish about Gorfindel a lot, but I know that Arathel <laughs> Trish is really like even in, in in a way even more than Gorfindel. Really, even more. Very yeah, characters. I'd say so. Absolutely. Yeah. But one of the things I really liked about this episode was that. Arthel in some of the previous episodes has kind of been the comic relief. We've had this mm-hmm. running joke about every time she goes out, she gets lost. <laughs> but in this episode, we really delve into her character yes. and she doesn't get lost. She has people with her guiding her so she doesn't get lost in the woods or anything. And you really get to see who she is as a character and she's not just a funny comic relief character who always gets yeah, lost. Yeah, I like that. Yes, That's and great. I liked her relationship with the Fanorians. You know, again, there's mm. there was real, there felt like real substance yeah. there. Like you could really see, she has a lot in common with them. She, you know, it's not just again the the one sentence we get that about that in the text. You could take that. I'm not saying it is the only way to interpret that sentence in the published Silmarillion, but one is free to interpret it as a mere act of whimsy. She's bored and she has this whim to go and see, like, I once hung out with the Sons of Fanor. I'd like to go see them again, right? Um, but having established her relationship with them, her friendship with them is much is much deeper and more substantive. When she wants to go to the Sons of Fanor, like, already, we've already made that. Like, even just what we've already done in season four means like it's going to be harder to read that sentence in the text in the same way again, right? It already feels more significant and that's awesome. Um, okay, cool. So, yeah. Cool. And I loved, I loved, uh, Bilbo giving Deesa a copy of his book. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. Um, I was interested in the way that the, the frame is kind of like, is kind of tailing off, right? We're not yeah. building up to a climax, uh, right. you know. I, we're not bu- building up to an exciting ending there in the in the frame, but that was good. I thought that actually worked really, really well, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and I liked the it direction. Foreshadowing a lot of things. Yes, exactly. Foreshadowing many things. Um, yeah. Oh, one last question. Um, I was surprised that you had. I, I so I really kind of loved the at length quoting of the Lay of Lathian description of Dory of Menegroth, right? You know, a king he was on car, in, in car, and carven throne in many pillared halls of stone. Um, where you began that, I thought you were going to stop short of the lines which Gimli reappropriates for the Song of Durin. In the oh, oh no, I, I did that intentionally. Yeah, I thought you were going to stop short of that. So my question is, are we going to, are, are we setting up a future, like, uh, copyright suit between, you know, uh, the dwarves of Akasa Doom and... Uh, because, we can be. <laughs> I, was just, I was just like, oh, okay, that's really... Because of course you 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 had uh, you had Balin singing the same song about Moria <laughs> and Gimli asking to learn it from him. Yes, exactly. No, I liked it. Uh, I thought that was I thought that was fun. Um, but uh, but yeah, I wasn't quite sure exactly long term where we were headed with that. We don't have to talk about that long. We're running out of time, so let's get to episode thirteen. Yes. Um, Th- this one. 
So the, we're going to have a dragon, right? Yeah. We're going to have a dragon on the screen. It's going to be awesome. Yes. And I, I really struggled with this one. Um, you know, you know well that I struggled with this one because the idea of bringing in the antagonist of the, of the finale in the finale, just like it, it, it really messed with my brain a little bit. Right. Um, I hear that, (laughs) uh, which, but you know, that's okay. We, we, we soldier on and, uh, we, we, we worked on it. And because um, you see, it's not about Glaurung, mm-hmm. right? Um, the antagonist in the final episode of the season is Morgoth. Right? Well, I mean, he is not in any way connected to this, and not ex- well, it hasn't been explained out that Glaurung left without permission. So, I mean, I, I. No, the point is the the whole justification of having the Glaurung incident be in episode thirteen um, is the fact not beca- not because the event is significant in itself, not because the fight with Glaurung is the fitting culmination of everything that has happened in the season, because in that way it's not, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason that it is the fitting. The reason that it does fit, the reason that it does work is that, again, it's it's not about Glaurung. It's about Morgoth, right? It's about the siege. It's about, as we're all at the end, as all of the elves are, are anticipating and looking forward and either um, preening themselves for how well the siege is going or mm-hmm. expressing their concerns that it's not that it, you know, might be challenged later on or expressing Amros's confident despair that it certainly will Nihilism, not work yeah. and that, and that they're going to be crushed. Um, those are like the, the, the final episode is, it's not an answer to that question, but it is a foreshadowing of the answer to that question, right? It is telling us what is coming. It is, um, Glaurung is not his own character yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what he is, what he represents in this final episode is, the promise that Morgoth is not going to be defeated. Morgoth is not going to be able to be held in check. Um, yes, the orcs were defeated, but he is, that just means he is making other plans. Um, and the elves are not going to be able to stop his other plans. And so the fact that, so, so that is the sense in which, um, it is not a sudden conflict with a new character out of the blue. I mean, it is that, but larger, like, (laughs) That's not the role that it plays in the structure. Like we're, we're we're not ending, we're not culminating the campaign with a random encounter. That's not what's happening here. <laughs> right? I mean, so so yeah. I mean, I remember that that was essentially your your response to yeah. this concern uh, back when we were kind of mapping out the season. Um, what we kind of did well, be- because, l- like I was saying, Morgoth doesn't appear in this episode. He's actually not driving. Right. the yep. conflict of this episode but the the real antagonist of this episode is actually the doom of mandos in a way okay right all right so the way that we address this um to connect it with the rest of the episode and to connect it to the wedding that also takes place in this episode which was another difficult thing to to you know like 
juxtaposing a wedding and a dragon attack, not the easiest thing in the world. But yes. the reality my, is... My idea to connect them by having Galadriel marry a dragon was quickly shot down. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah, yeah, that would have been... Uh, yeah. Exactly. Um, so much so that I don't even remember it coming up. Um, <laughs> the, the, the conflict in this episode is centered all around the treacheries that have been built up between the different groups of people that are involved. Mm-hmm. You know, the betrayal that, um, that Thingle feels on the part of the Noldor the betrayal that um, Fingolfin and Finarvin's people feel, uh, you know, in response to the Feanorians, the betrayal that the Feanorians kind of feel because they kind of feel like they're the only ones yes. doing yes. their they're jobs. The ones left holding the bag. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so we, so that's really what we tied together in this episode um, because that's really what this whole season is about really is dealing with the tensions that have resulted from the treachery that's been committed yes on on a a lot of sides you know um also when we were trying to figure out how to bring the dragon in um of course what came to mind was um the best of both worlds from star trek Mm -hmm. where you have this implacable foe that shows up and at first you don't you're not sure that that's what it is right and so they 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 the ship comes upon this um this destroyed colony and they spend you know the first half of the episode trying to track the borg ship down they eventually find it and it's too much for them and so on and so forth and the episode pans out it's one of the best episodes of star trek mm-hmm. the two of them together i hardly recommend going and watching it on netflix right now Anyway, um, or when we're done. Um, <laughs> after you're finished listening to this, go watch it. It's awesome. Yeah. So you're talking about the, the, the very first Borg episodes? No, 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 no. This is the this is the one where Picard gets assimilated. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Right. It's the yeah. best. It's sure. the two parter. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. And so using that kind of like hunting for the beast motif. Mm-hmm is really kind of the direction that we went with on this one. Um, and we used uh, Kelligorm specifically because y- you'd originally talked about having the dragon going towards the lands of the Feanorians so that the, so that Fingen saves the Feanorians from the dragon. But it was so like, it just felt kind of impersonal to do that because obviously if he's going to do that, you're, we're not going to see the Feanorians. Unless they like show up at the end, but that doesn't really deal with the tension, and so and you don't want Fingen going around. Oh my gosh, we have to save the Feanorians' land, guys! We have to save the land. <laughs> right, right, right. And right. so, so having Kelogorm be present there um, gave us the ability to kind of uh, feel out that tension a little bit and kind of bring it to the front, um, so that we could we could deal with it. Uh, in the course of the episode. Right. Plus it was extra fun to have one subplot 
be all about Celeborn and the other one be all about Kelegorm. Um, yeah. So that, that, that was... That, that didn't make our script discussion difficult at all. <laughs> yeah, that was also good. Um, and Celebrimbor showed up too, which made it even worse. Yes. Yeah, no, that was great. I, I really liked the Oradreth and Celebrimbor reunion. That was fun. Um, uh, <clears throat> uh, okay, so I do like the way I was surprised by the whole Celebrimbor Fingen um, tension. I, could, I wasn't expecting that to be. Kelegorm. 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 Darn it. See, I've already <laughs> done it. <laughs> Immediately made the mistake as soon as I brought it up. Kelegorm and Fingen tension. Um, I hadn't been expecting that. I had been expecting a more straightforward dragon battle. Like when Fingon was showing up and found the place burned out, I was like, okay, like that's great. I was, I was seeing, but yeah, I did not expect when Celeborn, when Kelegorm showed up and, um, uh, and then was having all these problems, you know, and there was all this, uh, uh, I mean, I was surprised, um, but I liked it. I, 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 I really liked that concept a lot. Um, because Nick, exactly as you said, it kept the focus on reconciliation, right? Um, and that was excellent. And it gave the, it gave that because that was missing. The marriage of the wedding of uh, uh, Celeborn and Galadriel um, is an almost perfect, you know. Uh, uh, sort of not symbol representative of uh, you know sort of distillation of the whole reconciliation and and uh, harmony theme uh, forgiveness and reconciliation, but one dynamic that is absent from that wedding is the dynamic between the sons of Fanor and the other Noldor, right? So that that one got fair play uh, between Fingon and Celeborn. Gelagorm, darn it. Uh, <laughs> uh, that one got fair play there. So we had that, you know, we had the reconciliation, you know, uh, Thingle showing up was like a, a nice little reconciliation, you catastrophe uh, at the end. That was, that was excellent. You know, so we, we've kind of, uh, you know, we kind of healed those things. Anyway, I, I really liked how all that worked together. Um, my, my criticisms are fairly small. One thing, well, okay, let me ask a question. How are you guys picturing Glaurung? I don't mean physically. I mean mentally. Um, are we supposed to imagine that this is like infantile Glaurung? I'm asking because the one thing that I found myself kind of twitching at while I was, while I was reading it was... Glaurung acts like an animal a lot. Mm. Like he stops yeah. to eat a horse while the battle is going, well, there are still yeah. other unfought opponents right there. Um, Glaurung is not only intelligent, Glaurung's a genius, right? So if we're going to argue and we could do this later on, like it's okay, like we'll not get in trouble with anything right now because we don't, nobody knows who Glaurung is yet, right? right. So the idea that our first impression of him is that he's just a ginormous and scary beast. And then later on, when we see that he's much more and like, we get that second reveal that we've saved for season five, potentially, right. Which can work. And that can be really cool. I just want to make sure that we're being consistent with that. And we need to make sure that that works. Um, 
but in order for Glaurung, the Glaurung that we all know and fear, um, uh, in order for him to act like he was acting in those places, he'd have to be like the mental equivalent of a toddler, basically. Yeah. Um, I and think that... Haven't fought elves before. He really has no experience outside of Angband, where, mm-hmm. as Morgoth's favorite project, he was probably pampered a little bit. He probably didn't have to do a lot of fighting with everyone else. Like he, he didn't want to build him up as a ferocious animal, but he hasn't encountered the Noldor before. This is his first experience with them, and he is absolutely learning about them. And we even have the sort of trap that he sets for them in the end. That is demonstrating his intelligence. The way he sort of like jumps off his trail and backtracks so that the trail ends and they don't know where he's gone because he's gone back and hidden himself in order to surprise and ambush them. Yeah, and that's fine. I have no objection to him acting like that. It just that seems inconsistent with some of the other ways in which he's acting. And howsoever sheltered and ignorant he might be, which again, he certainly is both, um, that can be why he is able to be chased off by Fingon and his archers in the end. Right. Um, but again, but he's not going to like to be like, I'm just going to enjoy a leisurely meal while unfought opponents yeah. are circling around on my flank is that's it's yeah. just, that's just not consistent with the intelligence um, that he's showing in other places. As a question, were you, were you wanting the dragon to speak? See, I was waiting for him to speak and he didn't speak. And I was that's- like, I, yeah. I was you, wondering if that was the real issue not here. To do that, by the way, it's like, say, is, is the issue that he stopped and ate a horse, or is the issue that he never spoke? Because it they're was, two separate issues. They <laughs> are. The stopping and eating a horse was my primary issue. Right, um, we yeah. can change that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and by the way, again, there was nothing that he did that I felt couldn't be explained. I just want to make sure that we could explain it, right? So. Um, yeah. So the I, I would argue that the the. The reason he falls for the trap that they set for them is probably an inexperience issue. Yeah. Um, like, it's like that's a well thought out plan on their part. They know the terrain. He doesn't. And so he he falls for that. There's a couple also, things that he's can... overconfident. You know, he believes right. he, he believes that he is the biggest, baddest monster and they're all going to run from him. And he has reason to be confident. He's built right. some plausible confidence based on his success right. earlier on. Right. there. So, right. Yeah. Um, so there are two ways that we could perhaps um, build up his intelligence a little bit. I do agree that the eating, like I felt a little uncomfortable with the eating myself. All he has to do is just not eat the horse would... and slink off into the bushes again. You know, yeah, yeah. To, so, um, so that they at least fear that he's doing something devious instead right. of just grazing. Yeah. Um, another thing is when he's approaching Kelagorm, uh, I almost did it, mm-hmm. when he's approaching Kelagorm to kind of slow that down a little bit, at least at first, and have just in the description, because obviously the, you know, the, the, the audience is watching him do this, right? Um, we're not just focused on the elves in the valley, but having us kind of see him kind of weighing the situation um, mm-hmm. with, you know, like we can, animators can depict that. Right. You know, right. and we can describe that happening right. in a way that shows that he's not just, 
that he's not just an animal. The, just an the animal. nail in the coffin, right? The nail in the coffin, obviously, is when at the end, at the very end, he turns around and he smiles back at Fing, and like that's when we know, like, okay, that's that's it. There's a guy in there, yes. right? Yes. There's somebody there. Yes. Um, it's okay if the audience kind of isn't sure, mm-hmm. yes, but I, I agree. agree that they. I agree. I agree that they shouldn't. They shouldn't be confused. Like uncertainty and confusion are two different things. And we don't want to. We don't want how he is acting now to be flatly inconsistent with how he's going to be later on. We can show yeah. differences and change. Yeah. But it shouldn't be inconsistent. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no, I agree. So I, I like that. And yes, for the viewers to be in doubt, I'm okay, Marie, with him not talking. I was okay with that. Um, I was wondering if he would, but I was okay with him not talking because, again, that that seems to me a um, a fun opportunity for a season five reveal, basically. Mm-hmm. And you'd also asked us not to, so we didn't. <laughs> it was good. No, I thought that, I thought that worked out well. I thought that worked um, out well. The there there were a couple of other things like um, in the montage at the end. We have the actual forging of the dragon helm, which yes. I know that you guys had asked to put that in season five instead because you didn't want it to. We you didn't want us to be drawing a lot of attention to that. We felt that by kind of burying it in that montage, we, we we kind of removed that issue. Yes, um, but absolutely, we we also felt that there's no way Telcar is alive by the time season five opens. That's um, fine. That's fine, and I thought it was I that w- w- it was beautiful. I thought it was a beautiful ending. Yeah. A farewell to Telcar, um, the gift, the gifting of it to Fingen, mm-hmm. um, in as a you know as a, a, a fitting, um, uh, you know, culmination of the the, the Glaurung incident, um, and of course, uh, you know, perfect for Fingen to have it, obviously, so that he can give it away later on. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 that was great. I, 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 it's true. I did not want a whole big dragon helm subplot in this season yes. because it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not time for the dragon helm yet. But we can have it exist, and yes, and tying it to this moment was was great, and and having a nice little farewell to Telcar. Yeah, no, I loved it. I thought that was a brilliant mm. solution to that problem. Um, the the final moments of having Finrod find the camp of men. Uh, that was something also that we kind of shifted a little bit from what you guys have been talking about, about mm-hmm. maybe like showing men on the, you know, the eastern slopes of the mountains. Um, but given how much of the story is going to be about these guys, about the dying, mm-hmm. um this kind of gives it a more personal, like it illustrates the relationship that's going to be built between the elves and men. And it, and it hints at that rather than just, okay, they're coming because we already told people that last season. We're like, Hey, guess what? Men are coming. And then they don't. Right. And then they don't. And then at the, at the end of this season, again, we're we're like, like, Hey, men are coming (laughs) this way. We're we're saying, no, they're here, you know? Yeah. So we're, that's where we're starting off next Next and season. season five can begin. The first scene of episode one of season five can be Finrod sitting in the camp with the men, and we can have more interactions there. We right. can actually show more of Finrod singing to them and like conjuring images of Valinor and whatever he does. Right. Like 
just because it's in that ending montage doesn't mean that we that's the that only ending. bit of yeah. the finding of men that will show. That was my only concern. My only concern was that moment. I mean, Finrod coming among the men and playing the harp and everything is such an important mythic moment yes. that I wouldn't want to lose it or spoil it too much by mm-hmm. just including it in the montage. I do think it's going to make it a, a little... I, yeah, sure. We can do episode. We can start, you know, the credits roll on episode one of season five. And like, here's Fingen still, or yeah, Finrod rather, still st- still playing the harp, right? Still singing with the men. Um, but the initial moment of wonder, you know, the that initial moment of contact is already done. Like we've already, we've already played that card. Um I I guess that the moment of actual contact between mm-hmm. the thing that made me most uncomfortable about the its inclusion in the I was a little uncomfortable um the moment of contact between the two of them I think I would rather save I totally agree with your impulse here to be more than just a little teaser, which is exactly like the teaser from last season. Um, I, but, but I think the moment of first contact, I think we have to save them. Mo- I mean, we, we need to do justice to the moment of first contact um, and, and not and just I, be recapitulating it. And I agree with that. Um, I would say that our, and well, so, is he- what we show here is not uh, Finrod conjuring the images of Valinor and impressing them in. We show it's sort of from Finrod's perspective. It's he comes in, he sees people, and he finds a harp and he starts playing it. What we can show in season five is the men's perspective, this wonderful, magical figure coming in and playing these wonderful sounds they've never, ever been able to create with their harps and seeing all these things and from the men's perspective, it would be much right. more wonderful, much more mythic than from Finland's perspective. Right. Especially if the credits. So you're saying, like, you know, the credits roll and there's Finrod still playing the harp. What I would suggest is that we actually take a few steps back. Right. And our, our actual introduction to this is the men coming coming over the mountains and setting up this camp. And, you know, we, we kind of meet Bior, right? Uh, Bayor, however you pronounce Bayor, his name, yeah. and, and we meet them, and then they go to sleep, and then they wake up to this. So basically, we're gonna. There's gonna be a cut. Like what I would say is is not. This shouldn't. I would say there shouldn't be any dialogue there in yes. this bit here. There's, it's just their eyes open, which we've done. Like that's been a, a, a motif that we've been doing, right for for season endings is, is opening up the opening of eyes right and having right. their eyes open and then bam cut and then when we come back in season five we follow them we follow them over the mountains a little bit we get we get some of their dialogue we yep. kind of get a, a very very small piece of where they're coming from they go to sleep and they wake up and finn runs there and then we get the actual contact okay i like it i agree no dialogue um yes um okay yes that i think we can do 
we show Finrod walking through the woods, right? And we see Finrod looking in and seeing somebody. And then we show him, he can win. We, 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 we see the men and he walks among the men and he picks up a harp and he starts, and he, he just plays it a little bit. Right. Like all right. we show is him just sort of strumming the harp and he strum- right. he, he sits down and he strums the harp. And when he strums the harp, they wake up and their eyes open and we cut. Right. Um, yeah. Exactly. That way, the full mythic impact of first contact is saved for the next season. And we're showing it, as you and Rihanna are suggesting, from the human perspective. And so it the right. whole the same scene will look completely different from their point of view than it did from Finrod's point of view. And they'll actually be on their way to becoming characters at yes. that point by Before, the time we... Yeah. Right now, yeah. they're just sort of relatively savage-looking... as far as we know, right. yeah. But uh, uh, extras who are suddenly bolting up and opening their eyes. Right. Extras, one well, of whom is probably played by a known actor. <laughs> right, sorry, what was that, Rihanna? The only one I actually have waking up is they are. They don't all come awake at that moment there's just well, one yeah, person i don't think we show all of them right yeah we show bayor primarily yeah because yeah. he's going to be the main character yeah yep yep um yes yeah okay i can live with that i can live with that um i agree we don't want to just lamely recapitulate the teaser at the end of the last season but i just really don't want to spoil that scene but i like that i like that angle and what one of the other things i like about it is it's very closely parallel it's not exactly the same but it's very closely parallel to what we did between season one and two yeah i agree where we saw like the elves in quivian and like from a distance from the valar point of view right as they're fighting their battle with morgoth and then uh or Melkor, rather, still at that point. Um, yeah. And then we we had, um, you know, from the the, the meeting with Orme entirely from the Elvish point of view. Right. So right. yeah. Um, is there anything else about this before we start to wrap it up? Um. Uh, no, no, I, I'm I'm good with the wedding. I thought the wedding was was good. Again, I liked how that all worked, and I I, I kind of did all my Celeborn Kel- and Galadriel. Uh, discussion earlier on. So, um, um, Elise McKenna was asking uh, uh, in the questions box here um, the switch in perspectives, does it, does it change uh, as a lead in to a now human look at the events in the Silmarillion? Elise, yeah, we're going to, yeah. not entirely. It's not like we're suddenly shifting and we're never going to show the Elvish point of view again. But one of the things that we do have the freedom to do and that I am quite looking forward to um, is telling giving a human perspective on some of these other things that are going to be happening um Mm -hmm. and it does mean we're going to some of the events which we aren't changing necessarily from the silmarillion are going to look very different when we narrate them from the point of view of the humans absolutely we we kind of already were hinting at the the difference between the mortal and immortal mm-hmm. perspective mm-hmm. in episode 12 also with the dwarves and showing yes. the aging yes. as the dwarves and the yes. time passing and um and and all that which i really liked um so uh one thing before we we completely wrap it up um i wanted to thank you guys for for doing this um not this not the script talks but the project itself and um I don't, I, I'm not claiming to speak for anybody else, it, it, although I'm sure that there are a lot of people who would 
echo this. Um, this has been one of the more fascinating looks at the Cimmerillion that I've personally ever had. Yes. Um, I've learned a ton of stuff, not only about the Cimmerillion, but about Tolkien's greater works and a whole bunch of other side things that you learn when you're trying to script a television show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I just wanted to, you know, and this has been a, a tough season in a lot of ways. Last season was, was a tough season in a lot of ways. But I wanted you guys to know just how appreciated uh, this all is in, in having a uh, a creative outlet in Absolutely. some ways. It's, yeah. uh has been really, really great. So this uh, this season really has been a transition in that way, right? I mean, as we have this season gotten to the part of the text where there is so much less story to work with, you know, and we have been filling in a lot of gaps in the, t- you know. We've been telling, trying to tell the story of all of those centuries that the narrative skips over in the Silmarillion, and um, and so it has meant so much more uh, creating on our part. You know, we've been we've been doing much more making and much less adapting uh, in that way uh, this year, and that's it's been more complicated. It's already longer. Murray, when do do you happen to remember? Uh, do either of you remember how many episodes uh, like sh- show sessions? Um, the previously longest season was. Weren't we at like twenty? At oh, most? I have no idea. Probably yeah, something like that. Twenty something, but definitely not up to thirty. And this is thirty already for this one. So, yeah. and we're not finished yet. So, yeah, this is definitely longer and, than any. And yeah. it's not entirely our fault because you guys spent a lot more time going over the the preseason yeah. plan out than normal. Well, except everything took longer than which is fine like which is necessary because there was so much uh yeah, that needed. but anyway uh, nick the, i bring this up in it just to to echo what you were saying about creative outlet right um my original goal of this in the film film project you know when i started it was what you said first right that i thought that this would be a really fun uh and a unique angle from which to look at the text right um and it certainly has been that and it's been it's been delightfully fun the thing that kind of surprised me in this season is how much i have also been enjoying it as a creative outlet as well um i have been finding my own creative impulses being satisfied uh by our discussions uh in this series more than i ever guessed they would be um and that's really excellent. One of the things that I have been feeling more and more, and certainly our discussions of the scripts uh, at the end of this season has really kind of crystallized that for me in a lot of ways. Um, I would love to be thinking as we move forward. Um, but, I mean, it's it's awesome to have all of this stuff that we've done in our, you know, archived in the podcast, you know, in the now, you know, what, 100 and hundred ish episodes, more than a hundred, 120 ish, maybe episodes, uh, of, uh, of the film film project. Um, it's one thing to have all this material out there in the discussion boards, which anyone can go and find and look through and everything. Um, I want to be thinking more about something that we can collect. 
um, I don't want to use the word publish because I, I don't mean with a publisher. Um, something that we can kind of package uh, in to help other people who maybe don't have time to read through the thousands of posts on the discussion board or time to listen <laughs> to the hundreds of hours of pod of back podcast episode in this, you know, something to help other people to get some of the benefit of, uh, of that, that we're, that we're talking about from this project. I think that would like be a wiki. I don't know what form we'd want it to mm. be in exactly, but um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure of the mechanism. I'm not sure of the product exactly, but I think yeah. it would be, I would really like to be able to spotlight what we've done more and enable people to kind of jump in more cleanly, right? You know, to yeah. give people a little, not that it would be a synopsis, but it would be, it would be a kind of shortcut, right? I mean, even if we had something like, you know, the outlines yeah. and, and scripts and things from the, you know, so that people could just kind of catch up on the first four seasons and then join us for our yeah. ongoing discussions. <laughs> yeah, the it, it always makes me sad. Catching up the podcast takes months. Exactly, it does, <laughs> it, yeah. It always makes me sad when I hear somebody say, oh yeah, that film film project thing, I've been, I've I've heard about that, but like, it, I just haven't been able to catch up. It's like, yeah, well... Don't catch I get up. That. Yeah, yeah exactly. but like, I'd rather you just hopped in without... Ed- any idea of what what was uh, going on previously? Exactly, um, exactly. Because we'll we, help catch people up. We can explain what we've done in the past. Yeah. Well, and that's yeah. what I'm thinking about. You know, thinking about, and we can, you know, we can have more of this discussion later on. But anyway, Nick, this is just as to agree with you and say I've been, I have found it very, very rewarding in 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 the same way, and I'm really glad that this has been happening. And I, in turn, thank you guys for helping this project to evolve in the way that it has you know uh um you know this is certainly no longer just only a podcast series that i'm doing right you know there's uh uh there's a lot more life that this project has taken on and i think it's been uh it has been tremendous fun and it certainly has made it more fun for me uh than it would have been even just as a kind of cool podcast idea um which is where it started um i still think it was a kind of cool podcast idea but it's grown into so much more than that um okay uh last uh announcements um, so we are doing our next po- our, we're uh, having completed our discussion of the scripts uh, we're going to come back on January 2nd uh, and have our first of, of the last set of uh, post-production episodes for season 4 um, we're going to be talking about sets and locations um, uh, so we want people to post ideas photos or sketches on the message boards in the sets and props forum uh, as we talk about that and the voting for casting is in progress um we're gonna uh, the the voting is gonna end on uh, on Christmas Day, so uh, uh, so please vote uh, for whom we're going to cast into these roles. Um, and again, you can find all that stuff on the discussion board, um, uh, the film film discussion board. So thanks everybody. Uh, thanks everybody for uh, for joining us for this session for listening uh, asynchronously and uh, I look forward to closing out our final discussions uh, our final visions for season four uh, and then getting ready for season five so thanks everybody for listening and Godspeed <laughs> <laughs>